pray that we would uh, focus on the things that uh, we need to focus on. And Lord, everybody here needs the Holy Spirit to minister to them. Everybody here needs to hear from you tonight. And Lord, I pray that you would help me, that I would yield myself to say the things that that you want me to say, and that your Holy Spirit would do a work tonight. We love you, Lord, in your precious name I pray. Amen. Alright, well we find there ourselves in John chapter number 18, and uh, we're, we're pretty much in, back into the, the timeline of John. If you remember the last few weeks, we've been just preaching through the last four chapters where Jesus has been talking to His disciples and been praying in the last chapter, and now we find ourselves back in the story, and Jesus has uh, been captured and is uh, going to be ready to be uh, crucified. And I want you to look down at verse 1, John 18:1. The Bible says, when Jesus has spoken these words... He went forth with his disciples over the book, uh, the brook Cedron, where was a garden into which he entered, and his disciples. Now I want to say this, and you know you don't have to turn there, but this is a very important uh, uh, thing here because in Second Samuel chapter number fifteen, if you're familiar with the Bible, you remember when David, when Absalom had. Uh, conspired against his father to take his father's kingdom. Absalom, the son of David, took the kingdom of, of King David, his father. And, uh, and King David, when he ran from Absalom, and he ran uh, you know, him with his mighty men and those who were loyal to David, they crossed the brook, the, the brook uh, uh, Kidron, back in uh, 2 Samuel 15, um, as they were leaving uh, you know, going into the wilderness, and then they crossed it again on the way back. Um, and really there's a picture there. There's a picture of, of because King David is many times a uh, type of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that, uh, you know, Jesus will reign on the throne of David. And Jesus was, a, you know, came from the lineage of David. And in the same way that King David crossed the river in defeat, you know, if you will... Jesus is crossing that river knowing, you know, that brook, I'm sorry, knowing that he's going to be put to death. But the beauty is that David one day came back. When Absalom had been defeated, David came back as the rightful king. And you know the beauty of the, of the analogy there that Jesus Christ one day will come back. You know, he, he came as a lamb, is what the Bible says. The lamb of God will take away the sins of the world. And he died for us. But when he comes back, the Bible says, he's coming, he's coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when Jesus Christ comes back, he's coming back in triumph and in glory and in victory. In the same way that David did. And you know, we could preach an entire sermon on that, and I, I don't, you know, I don't want to do that, but I, I don't want you to just read that verse and think, oh, it's just fluff. You know, there, nothing in the Bible is just fluff. God doesn't just put things, you know, verses in the Bible just because He didn't have anything else to say. Everything is in there for a reason or for, uh, for you know, to be able to admonish us or teach us something. But look at verse 2. The Bible says, And Judas also, which betrayed them, knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted hither with his servants. Now, I think this is interesting because the Bible tells us how Jesus was so consistent in his life. He was just consistent to go into the synagogue and preach the gospel. He was consistent to have personal uh, uh, time with God his Father in prayer and in devotion. And the Bible tells us here that Judas, he knew the place. He knew exactly where to go. And the Bible says, For Jesus oft times resorted hither. You know, Jesus had this way of life and this just consistency of his life where you knew where he was going to be. You knew where to find him. You know, one thing that we as Christians ought to be able or ought to be trying to uh, learn from Jesus is that of a consistent life. You know, I've said before, people ought to know you so well and know your life where they just know, they just know where they can find you. You know, you ought to live your life in a way, seriously, you ought to live your life in a way um, where 
People, they, they know, hey, look, I'm not going to call so-and-so on Wednesday night at 7 p.m. because I know I already know where they're going. They're at church. You know, I know where they're going to be on Sunday night. I know where they're going to be on Sunday morning. I know where they're going to be on Saturday morning or whenever you go. So I know, you know, at this time they're reading their Bible. At this time they're having Bible time with their family. At this time, people ought to know, just like Jesus, they just knew. You know, when Judas uh, went and got the band and said, you know, where can we find Jesus? said, I know where Jesus is going to be. He said, where he, always, where he always goes. He resorts there oft times. I mean, he went there often. And we were talking in the bulletin about uh, the challenge for the month of April. And we want people to be consistent to church. And the sad thing with Christians, and look, I'm not getting on anybody. Because the truth of the matter is that, you know, it, everybody deals with this. But the, the, the worst, you know, the, the, one of the worst characteristics that can ruin your spiritual life is that of inconsistency. If you are an inconsistent person in your Bible reading, in your prayer time, in your church attendance, in your soul winning, in whatever it is that you're, you, know, you need to be doing, you're going to struggle spiritually. You know, that's why we're having that challenge. We try to teach people to, hey, be consistent to church. You know, people are, if people are staking out your house, they ought to be able to know, hey, on Wednesday night we can rob their house because I know every Wednesday night they're going to be gone. You know what I'm saying? That's how consistent your life should be. I remember when I was a kid, um, we got our house broken into. And we got broken into on, you know, I think it was a Sunday night. And, I, you know, I don't know, maybe it was just a coincidence or whatever, but, you know, if anybody would have been watching our house, our, our life for three or four weeks, they would have known, hey, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, they're consistent. You know, that's just where they're going to be. And, um, you know, we ought to try to live life that way. We ought to try to live our lives in a way where um, we just, people say, hey, I know, I know where they're at. They have a consistent life. They resort there oft times, is what the Bible said about Jesus. And that's a good uh, thing there. So we ought to learn that from Jesus. Look at verse 3. Judas then having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh hither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed them, stood with them. As soon then as he... Now, this is interesting. Look at verse 6. It's very interesting what happens here. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Isn't that amazing? Jesus said, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. And as soon as he says it, the Bible says, they just fall backwards. You know, and really, it's just a picture of the power of the Word of God. The power of, of God's Word. To where He would just say this, and these men would fall back. You know, the other thing I think of when I read this, it reminds me of Benny Hinn. You know, if you've, if you've ever, uh, you know, watched Benny Hinn, you know, or, you know, looked him up online or whatever. Benny Hinn is a preacher. He goes around, he heals people, and the thing he's known for, he heals people, and they just fall backwards, you know. But it's interesting to me, you know, to just think about this. As far as I can, I've read the Bible cover to cover many times. As far as I've ever seen in the Bible, there's only one time when people fall backward in the Bible, and it's these evil Roman soldiers who are getting ready to crucify Jesus Christ. You know, it's not necessarily a good thing. You know what I'm saying? I think it's interesting that Benny Hinn has all these Christians. He heals them and they fall backwards. And it's like, well, the only time that ever happened, it was bad people, you know? So something to think about. I don't know if there's anything there. But I thought that was interesting. Look at verse 7. Then asks he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you know, again, you, you think they would just, they just, he, he, he spoke words and they literally fell on their backs. And then they just get back up and he's like, who's he? And they're like, oh, we're Jesus of Nazareth. You know, like, like it doesn't even phase them. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. 
And the Bible says in verse 9 that the saying might be fulfilled which you spake of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. If you remember in uh, John 17 when Jesus was praying he's telling his father that he didn't lose any of the disciples except for the son of perdition uh, Judas Iscariot because Judas betrayed him. You know and, and again another characteristic of Jesus Christ that we learn is not just that he had a consistent life but he was a good leader because even in this very stressful time when he, he, he's going to be ready to be crucified he's thinking of others he's thinking of his disciples he's thinking he's saying you know, you know okay well if you're looking for me let them go you know let, let them go their way don't, don't hurt them don't mess with them he's, he's thinking of his disciples and that's a great characteristic there look at verse 10 then Simon Peter having a sword drew it and smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, you know, you got to keep in mind, you know, you, I, I would venture to say that Peter wasn't trying to cut off his ear. I mean, he was more than likely trying to cut off the guy's head. You know what I'm saying? And he probably just missed, or maybe the guy just kind of, you know, moved a little bit and cut off his ear. But the Bible says that, that Peter took out a sword, and he, and he went for this, uh, you know, servant's head, and he, and he cut off his, his ear. And um, in verse 11, the Bible says, Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheep. Uh, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink of it? Now, you got to think of this, and, and first let me explain this. In, in other Gospels, it tells us that Jesus actually picks up the man's ear and heals him right there. I mean, there, there's so many things that happened during this time frame. You, you think these guys would just decide, you know, I'm just going to... I mean, they come up to Jesus, he asks them, who, you know, who seeks you? They say, Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he, they fall backward. I mean, that would be enough for me to say, hey, I'm not messing with this guy. You know what I'm saying? But they get back up, he says, who seeks you? And they're just at it again. Then they... Peter cuts off a man's ear, Jesus picks up the ear and heals the man, and they still bind him and take him away. You know, it's just amazing to me. But, you know, sometimes people will look at verse 11, and they'll look at Jesus saying, uh, Jesus saying, put up thy sword into the sheep. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? And people will have this mentality about Jesus Christ, and they'll have this mentality about Christians. And Christians will have a mentality that, you know, we as Christians need to be anti-weapons. You know, anti-guns. You know, and this time anti-swords. Because, because Jesus told him to put up the sword. Now, let me show you, uh, if you go back with me to Luke chapter number 22. Keep your finger there in John 18. Because we're obviously coming back to John 18. That's our text for tonight. But if you look at Luke 22, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So you just want to go back one uh, book to Luke chapter number 22. And... Luke 22, we're in the same time frame here in the life of Jesus, a little bit before it. But I want to show you that Jesus was not anti-guns. Now, if you, if you go off the pictures, you know, of Jesus that are commonly referred to as Jesus, you know, this long-haired, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, you know, a dress-wearing hippie, uh, you know, then, then you might... You know, I, I, I maybe could understand why people would think he's anti-guns, because he looks like some, you know, pot-smoking queer in a bunch of the pictures that these people draw of Jesus. But that, the pictures that they draw of Jesus and the, the picture that the Bible draws for us of Jesus are very, uh, two very different things. If you look at Luke uh, chapter number 22 and verse 35, the Bible says, And he said unto them, When I sent you without a purse and script and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said nothing. Now he's referring to the fact when he sent them out the first time to preach. He told them, hey, don't take anything. And he said, did you like anything? They said, nothing. Look at verse 36. Then said he unto them, but now, he's saying, I'm going to send you out again, but this time, he that had a purse, let him take it. 
and likewise his script. And look at what it says. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garments and buy one. Now, was Jesus anti-weapons? No. In fact, he said, look, if you don't have a sword, he said, sell your clothing and buy one. For I say unto you that this... uh, for I say unto you that this that is written must uh, yet be accomplished in me, and he was reckoned among the transgressors for the thing concerning me uh, have an end. And look at verse 38. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he, said, and he said unto them, it is enough. So they said, hey, Lord, we've got two swords. And he said, okay, good. You know, so Jesus was not anti-guns. And these Christians, you know, I used to know a guy I worked with, he had a bumper sticker on the back, and, and it, it talked about, you know, it says something stupid like, the Ten Commandments are not the Ten Amendments. And it was like all about like, the Ten Commandments said, thou shalt not kill. They, you know, it doesn't matter if the Constitution says we have the right to bear. Some hippie weird thing about that. You know, but it, it, that is not, you know, that is not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus of the Bible is not this, you know, peace-loving communist that wants to take the weapons from everybody. He said, hey, go buy a weapon. The reason he told Peter, and you can go back, now keep your finger or keep something, a bulletin or something in Luke 22, because we're going to be coming back to Luke 22, but you can go back to John 18. But the reason that Jesus told Peter to put up the sword is because Jesus wasn't trying to fight his way out of that situation. In fact, we're told in other Gospels that he told Peter, look, I could have called down 10,000 angels if I wanted to fight my way out of the situation. And many times throughout the Gospel, the Bible says that the Pharisees were going to try to kill Jesus and he perceived in his heart and he would just disappear from them or he'd walk away or he'd leave and and, um, he would hide himself because it was not the right timing. But at this point, Jesus was saying, look, it's it's time for me to die. I'm not trying to fight. But he wasn't anti-guns, okay? So don't let these people tell you that, you know, you need to be anti-guns to be a Christian or anti-weapons. Look, he said, hey, if you don't have a sword, buy one. They said, we've got two. He said, okay, that's that's enough. You know, but um, actually, I'm sorry, I told you to go uh, out of Luke 22. Go back to Luke 22. Um, But let me read for you out of John 18, 11. Because in John 18, 11, uh, that verse there, he said, Then said Jesus unto Peter, put up thy sword unto the sheath. And then he made the statement. He said, The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Now, if you, if you go back to uh, Luke 22, look at verse 39. Luke 22, 39. The Bible says, And he came out and went, as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, now, you can go back to John 18. Keep your finger on Luke 22 or something, because we are going to come back to Luke 22. I apologize if I'm confusing you. We will be back to Luke 22, but you can go back to John 18. I wanted to read that for you and show you. This was a very stressful time for Jesus Christ. You've got to keep in mind, you know, as we, as we read about Jesus Christ, uh, we've got to keep in mind that He was God in the flesh. He was 100% God, but at the same time, He was 100% man. And He felt things like we feel things. The Bible says He was tempted, you know, in every same way as we are tempted, yet without sin. And, and Jesus did not want to die. Physically, he said, if this cup could pass from me, let it pass from me. I mean, could you imagine the stress of just knowing 
Not just that he was going to die, but knowing how he was going to die. And the Bible says that he was praying, and he, and I mean, to the point where he was sweating, and it was as it were blood, uh, drops of blood falling down from you know on the ground. The Bible says that God sent an angel to minister to him and to help him because he was in agony. I mean, it was a stressful time. And if you look at John eighteen eleven, he made the statement to Peter. He said, "The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it?" See, he, he he realized. He said, "Look, if this cup could pass from me, let it pass from me." But he said he he realized this cup can't pass from me. This is the way it must go. And he's telling Peter. He said, "Look, Peter, I've got to do this. I've got to drink of the cup that my father has given me." And if you look at verse 4 in John 18, he says, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him. So he knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew what he was going to go through, and he went through it anyway. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is not trying to run away, or hide, or fight his way out of this situation. He went through it, knowing exactly what was going to happen. And here's why he did it, for you and for me. That's who, that's who he did it for. That's who he went to the cross for. That's who he was thinking about. He was thinking about us. And that's why he went through it. Now you're, you're there in John 18, look at verse 12. Then the band and the captains and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him, and led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, uh, which was the high priest that same year. Now uh, Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And I, I don't have time to go into it. We preached about it when we were there. But if you remember, the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied, and this was an unsaved man, but he prophesied about the death of Jesus Christ. He was unsaved, but he was a high priest. And Simon Peter followed Jesus. And so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. Now, it's very interesting, you've got to keep in mind, whenever in the book of John there is a reference made to a disciple, but his name is not mentioned, he's just referred to as like, in verse 15, another disciple, that's always John, alright? John does not refer to himself in the book of John as John, he just refers to, always refers to himself as the other disciple, or as the disciple that Jesus loved, he never refers to himself as, uh, by his name. But the Bible says that Peter followed Jesus, and so did John. Uh, and, 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 the, and John, you know, was known unto the high priest. He, he had connections, and he went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. So, John knew the high priest, so he was able to get into the palace. But look at verse 16. But Jesus stood at the... I'm, I'm sorry, Jesus. But Peter stood at the door without. Why don't you make a note of that phrase there. But Peter stood at the door without, then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. So I want you to understand what's going on. John and Peter are following Jesus. They take Peter, they take Jesus to the house of Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest, and John knows the high priest, so he gets into the palace, but Peter stays out. The Bible says Peter stood at the door without. But then Peter comes back out, talks to the young lady, and says, hey, let him in, he's with me. And then Peter comes in. Um, and then, uh, look at verse 18, 17. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Are not thou also one of his, this man's disciples? He saith, I am not. So the damsel said, to Peter, aren't you one of his disciples? Aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And Peter denies Jesus, says, I am not. And the servant and the officer stood there, who made a fire of coals, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. 
Now, you know, we didn't look at it in John, but in the other Gospels, Peter goes to, to Jesus and says, you know, though everyone deny you, I will never deny you. And he says, I'm never going to leave you. He said, I'm going to fight for you. And look, I believe, you know, I've heard other preachers kind of beat up on Peter. I honestly believe Peter meant it. I don't think you'd cut off a man's ear unless you meant business. You know, I think he was serious. I think he was sincere. I think he's saying, look, Jesus, I'm going to stick with you, and I'm going to die with you if I must. And, but Jesus, if you remember, he told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Before the cock crows, you're going to deny me thrice. And, um, and Jesus told him about that. And here we find ourselves that Peter did that. Now, it's very interesting, if you look at verse 16 again, the Bible says, but Peter stood at the door without. It's, it's interesting, Peter was fine when he stood at the door without, in verse 16. But in verse 18, he found himself in trouble when he, if you notice, at the end of the verse there, towards the end of the verse, it says, Peter stood with them. So, when he was without, he was fine. But when he stood with them, then look at what it says in uh, verse uh, 19. The high priest then asked, I'm sorry, not 19, where am I? I put these notes backwards a little bit. Let let me stick with my notes. We'll get back to that point in a little bit. Um, You know, but the point is this. Peter was standing without, and then he was standing with them, and that's when he found himself in trouble. You know, uh, on Sunday morning we preached a sermon because it was... Friend Day, preached a sermon on friendship, and one of the points we made was this, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just read this verse for you, but Proverbs chapter number 22 and verse 24, the Bible says, make no friendship with an angry man. The Bible commands you to not make a friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go. And in verse 25, he tells us why, he says, lest thou learn his ways. And get a snare to thy soul. The Bible tells us to not become a friend with an angry person because we may learn their way. Uh, You're there in John 18. Look at verse 5. John 18.5. This is interesting. John 18.5, the Bible says, "They, They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto him, I am he. And look at what it says about Judas. And Judas also, which betrayed him, look what it says about Judas, stood with them. At that moment, Judas identified himself as the betrayer of Jesus Christ. At that moment, Judas identified himself as the enemy of Jesus Christ. And you notice how he did that. The Bible makes it very clear. He stood with them. Who's them? The people who were coming to take Jesus. And it uses the same terminology for Peter because the Bible says he stood at the door without... But when he came in, the Bible says Peter stood with them. And look, let me tell you something. You need to be very careful who you're standing with, and who you're friends with, and who you, and who you're, um, you know, allowing yourself to be influenced with. Because the truth matters, who you stand with is who you identify yourself with, and who you hang out with, and who your friends are is who you identify yourself with. And Peter was fine up to. When he got locked out of the palace. When he stood without the door, he was following Jesus because he loved Jesus. He proven his love for Jesus by trying to cut off the head of one of the servants and accidentally cut off his ear. He was fine. But, when he came in, and he stood with them at the fire, then the peer pressure got He said, peer pressure is just for kids. Peer pressure is for everybody. We can all be peer pressured into doing something wrong. And you know, another interesting thing to, to realize is not everybody is supposed to do the same thing. Not everybody, you know, maturity level is fine. John, and I'm not saying it was a sin, but John may have made a huge mistake. Because Peter, maybe God wanted Peter to stay without. 
John went in, Peter stayed without. But then the Bible says, John came back out and said, hey, let my buddy in. You know, but maybe, maybe John should have just let Peter out. But he brought him in. John was mature enough to be able to be in the palace and still love Jesus. And the Bible, says, the Bible tells us that John was the only one at the cross. He had all these women and John was the only disciple who was actually with him till the end. John had the maturity level to be in the palace and not you know, be afraid and not be assuaged by the pressure of others. But obviously Peter didn't. And maybe Peter should have just stayed without you know, and sometimes we try to get people to do things and put them in levels of authority or put them in situations that maybe, you know what, they're just not mature enough to be, to be leading that or to be doing that. Look at verse 24. Drop down to verse 24. Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas the high priest. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said therefore unto him, Are not thou also one of his disciples? He denied and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, saith, Did I not see thee in the garden with him? So, you know, the maiden says, Aren't you his disciple? He says, No. Another person says, Aren't you one of his disciples? He says, No. Then a guy who's related to the guy who Peter just cut off his ear says, I'm pretty sure I saw you at the garden. And in verse 27, the Bible says, Peter then denied again. Other Gospels tell us that he actually cursed. And immediately the cock crew. You know, the truth of the matter is this. When you spend your time with people, they're going to influence what you do. Peter went from saying he would never deny Jesus. Peter went from cutting off a man's ear to denying Jesus. And here's the only difference. Who he was with. That's it. When he was with the disciples, he was fine. When he was without the worldly influence, he was fine. When he stood with the worldly influence, he couldn't handle it. He denied Jesus. You, I told you to keep your spot there in Luke 22, right? Go back to Luke 22 with me. Look at verse 60. Luke 22, 60. Puts another twist to the story. Makes it a little worse. Luke 22, 60. The Bible says, Luke chapter number 22, verse 60. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately while he yet spake, the cock crew. And look at what it says in verse 61. Peter denies Jesus three times. The cock crows... And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the words of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Isn't that amazing? I mean, they're obviously in some sort of a scenario where Jesus could look and make eye contact with Peter. And as Peter denies him the third time, and the cock crows, just like Jesus said at that very moment, I, I just imagine, you know, I, this is how I envision, I don't know if this is so, but I envision Peter being able to look down into the palace or the judgment hall where Jesus was, and maybe just through a window. And the amazing thing about Jesus is that Jesus is God. So he, it's not like Jesus overheard him doing it. I just imagine Jesus being in this judgment hall, you know, having all these people surrounding him, just talking, you know, and, and Peter really being far enough away to where, you know, really... There's no way Jesus would know what's going on except for the fact that he's God. And at the very moment when the cock crows, Jesus just turns over and looks at Peter. And at that moment, Peter realizes what he just did and remembers what Jesus said to him. And the Bible says that he went out and he wept bitterly. And because of this event, we're, we know that Jesus left, that Peter left the ministry. He said, you know, he went back to fishing. And, um, he, and Peter, the leader of the disciples, you know, other than Jesus Christ, you know, but, but Peter, who was really the, the leader of the disciples, Denied him, and here's here's the only reason why. 
because of who he allowed himself to be influenced by. Let me tell you something. You allow the world to influence you. You allow your worldly friends to influence you. You allow your worldly co-workers to influence you. You allow the radio uh, to influence you, or the television, or the movies, or the things of this world to influence you, and you're going to fight. You say, I, I can't imagine that. Look, I couldn't imagine Peter denying Jesus Christ. Uh, if, if you would have never, never read the Bible, you just start at Matthew, and you're reading all the way up. Look, I would never think that Peter would deny Jesus Christ, but he did. And, and what's the only thing that changed? Who he was standing with. When he was standing with his disciples, and with Jesus Christ, he was willing to cut off a man's head. Cut off a man's ear. When he was standing without, he was fine. But when he stood with them, warming his, his hands, he denied Jesus Christ. He wept bitterly. Uh, go back to John 18, look at verse 19. We'll get off of that for a little bit. Look at John 18, 19. John 18, 19. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly. This is very interesting to me. Look at what he said. I spake openly to, all the, wor- to the world. I ever taught in the synagogues and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort. And in secret, look what he says, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me. What I have said unto them, behold, they know what I said. You know, I I wish, and the sad thing is that this isn't true, but I wish that every preacher in America would be able to say this, in secret have I said nothing. Ask them which heard me. You know, Jesus said this, he said, look, I haven't kept anything back. He said, I haven't said anything in secret. He said, I've been open about everything I believe. I've been open about all the doctrines I teach. Look, you all know what I, what I believe? Ask anybody who's ever heard me preach, because they can tell you what I said. But you know what the sad thing in America today? Is that the average, and I'll tell you the honest truth, I'm being very honest with you, you can disagree with me if you want, but you know, we can go down the line, I'll prove it to you. But the average, independent, fundamental, Baptist pastor in America, and look, there's some good preachers out there, I'm not saying all of them, there's some good preachers out there that don't do this, but for the most part, the average preacher just hides what he believes. That, you know, you got to be going to the church for three years before you realize what they believe about everything because they're just secretive about it. Because they say, well, well, you know, I, we don't want to uh, scare them off and we don't want to give them too much and we don't want, you know, we might have a visitor and I don't want to tell them everything I believe about salvation or tell them what I feel about the homosexuals or, or tell them, you know, this, this radical, controversial that thing or this is whatever. But is that the attitude that Jesus had? Jesus said, you want to know what I believe? Ask anyone who's ever heard me preach. Because I, and this is what Jesus said. In secret have I said nothing. And you know how, and, I'll t- and here's, I'm going to tell you the truth. You want to know how the average Baptist in America today, how they do it? Here's how they do it. They preach generic sermons that don't say anything. And then they teach doctrine by taking people one-on-one and discipling. They'll disciple you and then they, you know, so then some lady can sit down with another lady and then that way she can try to like, yeah, you know, and try to like, mold, you know, just kind of uh, massage it into them. You know, those, yeah, you know, let me, tell, let me tell you about this King James thing, okay? Here's the thing, you know, and then you kind of explain to them. But they don't stand up behind the pulpit and just preach it. Well, you know, well, here's the thing, here's what we think about abortion. You know, and then they, and they'll try to do it one and they'll try to like, 
And, but here's what they're doing. They're saying it in secret. They're not standing up in front of the whole congregation. Because somebody might get offended. They'll just, once you, you know, came enough times, then they'll take you off on the side and kind of, okay, you know, so here's what we think. Here, you know, the gay agenda, we don't really like it that much. And, and abortion, you know, it's kind of looked down upon in the Bible. And uh, salvation is not of works. No, it's not baptism. It's just faith, you know. And, and they'll do it in secret. But is that how Jesus did it? He said, look, in secret have I said nothing. And, and our goal at Verity Baptist Church, Truth Baptist Church, is just to be able to say this in secret. Have I said nothing? You all know what I preach? Ask anybody who's ever came here. They'll tell you what I preach. Look it up on the internet. It's all on there. Said, Do you edit your sermons? Uh, every time you say the word queer, you edit that out so that no, no. It's all on there. In secret, have I said nothing? And that's our attitude, and we try to have that attitude because that's the attitude Jesus had. And He said, Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. That's what Jesus said. And the sad part is that most people don't treat their ministries like that. Habakkuk uh, 2.2 says this, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon the tables, that he may run that readeth it. God commanded a preacher to just, He said, this is what I want you to do. I just want you to make it plain. He said, I just want you to tell them, just cry aloud, just spare not. And that ought to be our attitude, you know, with our ministries, is to just tell the truth. And preach the truth. And not try to hold anything back. And not try to hide something because so-and-so might get offended. And you know what I found? You know, all these preachers try to tell you, you know, you got to be careful. And, you know, you go to Bible college, you take a sermon, they'll tell you, you know, you preach your nice sermon on Sunday morning. Then you preach your mean sermon on Sunday night. And then you just have your Bible study on Wednesday night. You know? And then because on Sunday morning, you're on Wednesday morning. You know, the truth of the matter is, probably the most radical sermons I preach are probably on Sunday morning. And here's why. Because I've just, I, Sunday night I'm preaching through Genesis. So I just got to preach what the Bible says. Wednesday night I'm preaching through John. So I just got to preach what the Bible says. But on Sunday morning I get to preach whatever I want. So I just preach whatever I want. You know. So probably like the most radical sermons I preach on Sunday morning. You know, just completely opposite of what Bible college would teach. But here's the thing though. You know, here's what I found. Nobody gets offended. I preached, I preached an entire sermon on why women shouldn't wear pants. When every woman in the room... Okay, that, when I preached that sermon, we had like one adult male and myself, everybody else was women, and all the women were wearing pants except for my wife, and I preached a 45-minute sermon on why the Bible teaches that women should not wear pants, and if you have no idea what I'm talking about, grab the sermon in the back, modesty, nakedness, identity, it's all about Christian dress standards for a man or a woman, I preached an entire sermon, you know what, no one left here, Matt, you know that all of those women still come to our church? You know that every one of those women left here and said, thank you for preaching that. I never heard that before. I never seen that from the Bible. And you know what happened? Those women came back to church. You know what the funny thing is? They came back wearing a skirt. And you know, some of them wear pants. And look, we have no rules. I don't care if they wear pants or if they don't get pants. It really doesn't matter. I love everybody. But I'm still going to make it plain. I'm not going to hide what I believe. I'm not going to say something in secret. And that's what our attitude ought to be. You know. And, and you know what the funny thing is? Nobody gets mad. You say faggot and nobody gets mad. Nobody leaves. Nobody cares. Because people just like the Bible. They just like to, as long as you can back it up with the Bible, as long as what you're preaching is biblical, you know, but people get all scared about, you know, oh, everybody's going to get offended if you preach that way. Look, Jesus said, and secret have I said nothing, ask them which heard me, what I said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. That's what, he, that's what Jesus said. He said, I didn't say anything in secret. Look at verse 22. John 18, 22. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? 
Now, let me just, uh, you know, I don't know if you even caught this, but I want to just explain this to you so uh, you're not confused. You know, you might be confused and think, why is a guy saying, answers thou the high priest so? I thought he took him to Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest. If you look at verse 19, in John 18, the Bible says, the high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. If you look at verse 13, it says, and led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, which was the high priest the same year. You say, what is the deal with that? Is there a mistake in the King James Bible? There's no mistake in the Bible. Okay? Annas was the father-in-law of the high priest, but they refer to him as a high priest, and the Bible himself refers to him in John 18, 19, the high priest then asked Jesus of his, of his disciples and of his doctrine, because Annas is just, you know, you just got to think about it, Annas was just the high priest before Caiaphas. He's just the high. He used to be the high. Priest. In the same way that we would refer to President Bush as President Bush or President Clinton as President. Is he still the president? No, President Obama's the president. But he held that office, so you just refer to him in that way. Annas was the high priest before his son-in-law Caiaphas, and then they just refer to him as the high priest, even though he's not the acting high priest. So don't think that there's some sort of mistake in your King James Bible or anything like that. It's just that that's what's going on there. But look at verse 22. And when he had thus spoken, one of, his op- uh, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answer thou the high priest so. Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now it's interesting to me, and I don't think I don't know if that has anything to do with anything, but it's just very interesting. I want to show it to you. If you go with me to the book of Acts, chapter number twenty-three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. The very first, the next book in the Bible, Acts twenty-three, one. Paul finds himself in a very similar situation, and Paul's response and Jesus' response are two different things. If you look at Acts twenty-three and verse one. Acts 23 and verse 1. The Bible says, And Paul earnestly beholding the council said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law and command and uh, commands me to be smitten contrary to the law. So Paul just kind of, you know, tells this guy off. Look at verse four. And they that stood by, and they that stood by said, "Revilest thou God's high priest?" And then look at Paul's response. Then said Paul, "I wish not, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people." So, you know, this guy tells, the high priest tells him to hit Paul, and Paul says, you white wall, you tell him to smite me against the law, and then they said, are you talking like that to the high priest? And he says, I didn't know he was the high priest. And he said, I, he's like saying, I apologize. I, I didn't mean to mouth off to the high priest. And he's not having respect for him, but he's having respect for his position of authority. Well, Jesus Christ, when they, you know, when that happened to him, he didn't like apologize, he just said, hey... If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? You say, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is this. Jesus Christ is God. Okay? So Paul was putting himself under the authority of the high priest and saying, look, I didn't know he was a high priest. I'm sorry. Jesus Christ didn't do that because Jesus Christ outranks the high priest because he's God in the flesh. So I just thought that was interesting. But anyway, go back to John 18. Look at verse 24. John 18, 24. The Bible says, Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. And Simon Peter stood and warned himself. They said therefore unto him, Are not thou... You know, we already read these verses. Let's go down to verse 28. 
verse 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment, and it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. If you remember, we preached a sermon about this, but the Passover was the next day. So they didn't want to be defiled because they had the Passover, um, which was a Sabbath day. If you remember, we preached about how Jesus, the, all three days that he was in the grave, it was three Sabbath days in a row. If you look at verse 29, Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? And they answered and said unto him, If he were not a male factor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. You know, you gotta just think, what kind of response is that? You know, because they bring him, they take him from the high priest, and now they bring him to Pilate, the Roman, you know, leader. And he asked, well, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they just said, look, if he wasn't a male factor, we wouldn't have brought him to you. You know, the, the word male factor there, it means like evildoer. If, if you know, if you think of the root words, if, if you speak Spanish, you know the, the word for Spanish for bad is malo, which is, comes from the same root word as that male factor. You know, the word factor means what they do. And what they're saying is, if he wasn't a evildoer, if he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him to you. I mean, what kind of response is that? You bring somebody to a judge and, say, and, and they say, well, what did he do wrong? You say, look, don't ask me what he did wrong. You know, if he wasn't a bad guy, it wouldn't have brought him to you. what they're saying, you know. And, you know, they're, they're trying to say, look, we're not some sort of a jealous, angry mob, you know, when that's exactly what they are. A jealous, angry mob. They can't, they don't have anything to say what he did because he didn't do anything wrong. Uh, but look at verse 31. And then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. Because he says, look, if you're not going to tell me what he did wrong, then you take him and you judge him according to your Jewish law. The Jews therefore said unto him, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. So they were saying, because you got to keep in mind the way this society, this you know, is working. They're under Roman rule, but they're still allowed to like practice a lot of their Jewish stuff. You know, so they were allowed to uh, apply a lot of their Jewish laws up to an extent, but they couldn't just put somebody to death. The Romans had to death, so they wanted Jesus to be put to death. So they were having to bring him to uh, the Romans, and and that's the conversation that's going on there. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which is faith, signifying what death he should die. If you remember, Jesus talked about that he had to be lifted up above, you know, from the earth, uh, and signifying what death he should die, that he's going to die on the cross. Look at verse 33. And then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and called Jesus, and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Say thou this of thyself, or do others uh, tell it of thee, or tell it of me? Look at verse 35. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou, the king, art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, but for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth, my voice. Now this is very interesting to me. If you look at verse 38, Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? So he asks this question, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Now if you remember, you don't have to turn there, but in John 14:6, Jesus made this very famous statement. The Bible says, Jesus saith unto him, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus said, I am the truth. It's interesting to me that Pilate is looking at Jesus Christ. He's literally looking at truth in the flesh. He's looking at truth, and he asks this question, what is truth? That's amazing to me. 
But really, that's what this world is. You know, this, this world could not identify truth if it were staring at it. You know, the people in this world, they, they talk about all these random garbage. You know, they'll talk to you about evolution. They'll talk to you about all these things. And, and that don't even make logical sense. You think about it. You're like, it doesn't even make sense. But it's because they can't even identify truth. Here's why. Because only people who are saved can identify truth. If you remember, we've seen in other passages where it said that the Comforter was coming, the Holy Spirit was coming, to guide us in all truth. So whenever I hear of denominations having crazy doctrines that don't make any sense at all, I would think to myself, well, the problem is that they're not saved. That's why they come up with this garbage. That's why they come up with the, there's no hell. You know, I don't understand how anybody could read the Bible and, and come up with the idea that there's no hell. You know, but uh, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in hell. Seventh-day Adventists don't believe in hell. I just talked to a man who said he was Jewish, and he said, I don't believe in hell. You know, uh, I was out sermoning. So this doctrine of no hell is becoming more and more popular. And I think to myself, how do you come up with that? Really? I mean, Jesus Christ, every time he preaches, he's talking about hell. The Bible's talking about hell all over the place. The book of Psalms is talking about hell. The, you know, the, the Pentateuch talks about hell. The whole Bible just talks about this place called hell. And these people come up with this thing that there's no hell. And I just think to myself, well, you're not saved. That's why you don't understand. You know, the whole Bible talks about Jesus being God. The Bible says that, you know, your God's name Emmanuel being interpreted, God with us. You read John 1.1 1, 1, and you realize that God, that Jesus is the Word who is God. The whole Bible talks, the Bible says in Philippians that he was thought about robbery to make himself equal with God. The whole Bible talks about him being God and then these people say Jesus and God. And I think to myself, well, you're just not saved. That's why you don't get it. That's why you don't understand. Because you don't have the Holy Ghost. You know, and this guy couldn't identify truth because, you know, even though he was looking at it, staring at truth, and he said, what is truth? And that's what this world is all about. Look at verse 39. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now you don't have to turn there, I'll just read for you. Luke 23, 18 says, And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city, and for murder was cast into prison. The Bible tells us in Luke that he had taken part in a sedition made in the city. The Bible tells us in Luke that Barabbas was a murderer. The Bible tells us in John that he was a robber. This man man deserved to die. This man deserved to die on the cross. Barabbas had earned the wages of death on the cross. But in a perfect illustration of the gospel, we see a man who deserved to be condemned, who was already condemned, be set free, and Jesus took his place. And, and it's just a, a picture of salvation. Because in the same way that Jesus took the place of Barabbas on the cross, Jesus took our punishment for death and hell when he died on the cross for our sins. And it's just an illustration there of salvation. Barabbas represents every human being who's ever sinned. And Jesus Christ took his place in the same way Jesus took Christ takes our place. Did Barabbas go to heaven? You know, did Barabbas, uh, uh, and we don't know that Barabbas was ever saved spiritually, but did Barabbas, you know, get released because he lived a good life? He was just such a good person. They said, we're going to let you go. That's not what they released him. Did he get released because he repented of his sin? Did he get released because he got baptized? Did he get released because he went to church? He got released. Here's the only reason he got released. He, got, he, he was no longer condemned. is because Jesus took his spot. That's it. And the only way you can be saved is because Jesus takes your spot. And people try to tell us, no, it's because I live a good life. No, it's because I keep the commandments. No, it's because I give to charity. No, it's because I do good things. No, it's because I got catechized, or I, went, I took communion, or I did whatever. Look, that's
Jesus takes your spot. Period. And that's how Barabbas was not condemned. And if you want to get not condemned, you got to let Jesus take your spot. So anyway, let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord.